Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we bow in your presence on this, the first day of the week. Joyful and grateful to gather with one another, but in your name. Lord, we ask that we are able to do just what we've sung to glorify you and enjoy you forever. Lord, we ask that uh, you put our minds in the place they need to be. Focus our mind on the reason why we're here. Lord, would you open to our mind your word here in a few moments, but all for the purpose of being less like ourselves and more like you. Lord, we ask your blessings on one another uh, that you would take all the distractions away from our minds that we may have brought in here with us but at the same time Lord we leave those things in your care they're not nothing for some of us we have very serious concerns Lord we ask your blessing on our country on the week to come Lord we ask your blessing on our culture with so few facts these days it seems but with so many opinions Lord may we just have our minds renewed by your truth and Lord we ask that you reveal to us show us our sinfulness that we could regularly and routinely place that under the blood of Jesus Lord bless other churches in this area as they gather in whatever ways that they do. Lord, so many different concerns and restrictions and concern for others that are involved. Lord, uh, we need your wisdom. In this room and other churches need it as well to continue to be faithful and do what it is you've called our church to do that the world cannot do. They don't have what you've given to us. And that namely is your Holy Spirit. Teach us about your Holy Spirit today. And we ask all this in the strong, loving, kind, powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's good to see each of you folks. And thank you for coming and for your commitment to being here. And for each of you that are gathered by way of our live stream I have, I guess it's almost a habit at this point, but to mention in some shape or form, uh, just so we don't ever take for granted our ability to do this, we thank the Lord for whatever means we have uh, together. It's been, and I write this on my notes each week, 232 days since our last normal week. And we're praying to the Lord that uh, either we get back to normal or He helps us learn a new one. A new normal uh, where we praise Him more and not less. But um, I did want to mention one thing before we get started. Uh, so many of you have asked about uh, the Weaver family, Morris and Miss Martha. And uh, Morris is home now, and he's weak, but he's doing well, and his oxygen levels are where they need to be. Doctor's visit did its job. Professionals were of great help. We ultimately thank the great physician, 
But um, the prayer request now is for Miss Martha. She's also got the virus and at this point is asymptomatic. We want, to, we want it to stay that way. Um, and, of course, that's our, our prayer. But also a big thank you. She wanted to make sure this church body knew how grateful the two of them are for several days worth of uh, prayer and concern and calls. She told me at one point she couldn't get ready till after lunch just because the way the phone was ringing. <laughs> but especially yesterday with so many of you that descended on their yard to clean up after this last storm and uh, putting that whole thing together, um, they are very thankful. And this is a testimony to the goodness of the Lord we serve. But uh, there are others in their situation that you know of, I'm sure. And uh, there are going to be more before this whole thing is over. We just stay close. We stay humble. We stay with short sin accounts. And we just love each other like the Lord loves us. And together we're going to get through this. I'm convinced of that, if nothing else. Well, let's take our Bibles. Turn to John 16. And we're going to pick up where we left off last time. Um, actually, the paragraph break between the first part of chapter 16 and its next paragraph is actually mid-verse. So we're going to be looking at half of verse 4 through verse 15 is our portion for this morning. And uh, we've already set that up by singing about the Holy Spirit we concluded our last message by singing about the Holy Spirit. We'll do the same again today. The theme is the Holy Spirit. And uh, let's read through this. And then we'll look at it verse by verse. Make some application before we leave. But let's read and then we'll pray and ask for help. This is midway through verse 4. I did not say these things to you from the beginning... Because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine, therefore I say that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. This is the Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, our word, your word, is before us. We've read it aloud, heard it in our ears. Lord, open it to us in our mind. And Lord, having understood it, we ask that you help us obey it. 
Lord, would we all understand that just a mere man's words count for very little. These are the eternal words of God. May we take notice. Thank you for our time together to study it. Bless it for your glory, your honor, and our growth. We ask all this in your name. Amen. We've already made mention that this recurring theme since uh, from verse or, or chapter 15 after the vine and the branches. Uh, and since this upper room discourse began, which really started in chapter 13, where we saw Jesus washing the disciples' feet and teaching them things they needed to know for the hours to come. Uh, by the time we finished what we just read, there's actually no less than five references to the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, if I were to ask each of us to fill out a little quiz, it's always good to think while you're listening uh, in a service that there may be a quiz, although I've never given a quiz in all the time that I've been doing this. I won't promise that I won't because it, it might just be a situation where it's, it's, it's good to do that, but think that way always. What am I listening to? What, what is going, do I understand this? And how am I supposed to obey? We, we say that every week. But if we were to take a quiz, how much do we know about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost separately? If you were to take the three of those and write a percentage down, who would get the most, who would get the least? I think with Jesus, he would get the lion's share. We, we, we study about Jesus. We have been for almost a couple years now in the Gospels, and then all the letters talk about Jesus through the New Testament. Uh, we hear about Jesus in the Old Testament before he is known as Jesus of Nazareth, incarnate. And then the Father, if we were to say, okay, where do we go to learn about the Father? Well, the Old Testament's full of references to how he dealt with his people. But God the Father is spirit. He didn't have a body. We, we don't know of the things that he did in person in a human body. So there's a drastic difference in the way we were. And John himself is very clear in the introductory verses of John's gospel that the Son is here to show us the Father, that we can't know without his explaining it to us. And then there's the Holy Spirit, which is more mysterious than the other two. But we have to confess we're bad students of the Bible if we don't know anything about the Spirit. The Bible tells us a lot about it. But for some reason we may feel more distant. Uh, and depending, should I say, on your denomination uh, where the emphasis is given more on one of the three than the other. But what do we know about Him? And do we know Him as He is? Um, just to run through some of the highlights of what we see about the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures, He was there at the beginning, hovering or brooding over the face of the deep. That's pretty early. Uh, by the time you get to Exodus, we're told in Isaiah, however, we don't read it necessarily in the Exodus, but the Holy Spirit was at work in getting God's people out of Egypt and into the Promised Land 
Then there's a very specific reference as to the men who built the tabernacle and were skilled and gifted as the Holy Spirit came on them. Um, In fact, that is a recurring theme that we see through the Old Testament, especially beginning with the period of the Judges where God's Spirit would come on someone for the purpose of doing something very specific. Uh, we We have hymns that we sing. Uh, that have language written by David about uh, the Holy Spirit. And please don't take your spirit from me. And sometimes we have to teach our way through that, that since the spirit given at the day of Pentecost, that's not possible. Once you've got it, you'll never lose it. But we see all this, especially the Old Testament predicts the indwelling, permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit in all God's people, but it's not until Acts 2 that we see that fulfilled. But probably the biggest thing we need to know, and it will go against a very long living habit among church people, is to refer to the Holy Spirit as a him, not an it. We do that. It's a person, not a thing. Uh, not only does he relate like a person to the other two persons of the Godhead. We're going to learn this morning that the Spirit glorifies the Son as the Son glorifies the Father. But He also does a lot of personal things that things themselves or its cannot do. Each of these have a scriptural basis. I could give you each of these. For sake of time, I'll move through it quickly. He grieves. He intercedes. He testifies. He cries. He speaks. He creates, he has a mind, he can actually be blasphemed. And in this reference, by the time you get down to verse number 7, but if I go, as Jesus speaking, I will send him. So Jesus refers to him as a him. He's a person. So let's make sure that we're good students of the Bible, especially when it comes to the God that saved us even with the third person of the Godhead known as the Holy Spirit. Let's make sure that we don't take more of our understanding in such areas from uh, theologians, I don't know, like uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You know, talking about the force that gives the Jedi strength. Some of you know this line. He's explaining to Luke, I think it's on uh, Han's ship, that the force... It surrounds us, penetrates us, it binds the galaxy together. Sometimes we act like that's kind of the way the Holy Spirit is. It's some type of force. It's not. He's a person. And he's with us and has been since Jesus left his disciples. So these things are important. And if we know more about Star Wars than we do about the Holy Spirit, we've got a lot of homework to do. Got a lot of Bible reading to do. So let's look at what is said in the latter part of verse 4. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. We actually read into that last week. The purpose for it is Jesus had been taking the brunt of all the persecution. It's Jesus they want dead. He's the one who's to be betrayed and will shortly hang on a cross. So at that point, it wasn't necessary that he told certain things to them. And this is about them kicking them out of the synagogue 
killing them and thinking they're doing God a favor. He hadn't told them that yet, but he just had. And then he says, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? Now, the reason why I bring that up is because if you're a very good Bible student, uh, that looks to be in direct contradiction to chapter 13, verse 36, where Peter did specifically ask Jesus where he was going. And this is after he told them he was going to go away. And right now, Jesus is saying, I'm going away, but none of you ask me where are you going. So how do we deal with that? Uh, there's different opinions of how to deal with it from different scholars and commentator writers, but a good majority of them agree that because of what is said and how it is said, looking at the context and the whole discussion as one unit, it seems quite clear that the words of Peter in chapter 13 where the news was very new, it wasn't brand new, he'd been saying this, but this is where it begins to hit home. What Peter says doesn't at all amount to the concern that Jesus is referring to in verse number 5 of chapter 16. And it's quite true that neither him nor the other disciples, Peter that is, pressed the issue in order to gain an answer. Best way I'd know to describe this is let's say that uh, you got a dad and some boys and a trip is planned. Something comes up and the trip's not going to happen. Dad needs to tell the boys, hey, we're not, we're not going out. Something's come up. Probably the first thing out of the boy's mouth is, well, where are you going? And probably the last thing on their mind is where he's going. They're just upset that they're not getting to go where they thought they were going to go. And it's a whole different ball game if they say, now, Dad, tell us, you know, stop kidding around here. Where, where are you going? Does this mean you'll be making more money? Uh, does it, you know, there's other details, but the way this is put together, it doesn't look as if that is a concern, and that's what is Christ's concern. Because what he goes on to say is the transition between me being here and the Holy Spirit being here. And the reason why I'm going away has everything to do with the reason why he's coming. This is a teachable moment and teaching's not happening. So that seems to be the purpose for his concern. Uh, look at verse 8. What's undeniable here is that the disciples are, feared with, are filled with deep grief. Um, look at verse 6. But because I've said this or these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Uh, makes sense. But along with the sorrow, there needs to be some instruction. Verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. This has already been said in his many words. This is more specific than the last occurrence. And this is more precise in the conversation as all these things start to add up. There's very much weight, very much deep sorrow. And Jesus tells them, what we need to learn here is that it is to your advantage. There's a purpose here, and the purpose includes a better situation for you. You're, in other words, though it doesn't seem to make sense to us, 
And we would want to naturally ask the question, same as the disciples, how in the world can it be better that the Son of God leaves us on this planet alone? Uh, isn't that what we talk about at Christmas time? Uh, Emmanuel, God with us, greatest gift that's ever been given. Uh, then how do we describe when that is over and Jesus leaves? And it was never meant to be permanent, not in this stage. He'd come and he'd go back. It's a mission to be accomplished. Sometimes we don't think through it that way. But he's saying that it's actually better for you. Uh, I thought of ways to try to illustrate this in situations where someone who's close to you, it's better that they be far away from you. And I didn't do too good because none of us like that. We don't like being away from people that are important to us. But uh, every now and then, a situation occurs. I guess it's just the way that I'm made up. But many of you men would probably agree that there's a certain amount of pressure that's good for productivity. A guy who doesn't have anything to do is, is not as much use or of as much use as a guy who's got just the right amount of pressure, and then on the other end, way too much pressure, well, the guy could crack. Then he's no good to anybody for anything. When I'm right in the middle, I guess I'm, I'm more productive, but sometimes I get over in that too much pressure position. And my lovely helpmate that my Lord and Savior gave me, my wife Corey, will sometimes tell me, it's time for you to get away. It's good for you to be away. And I'll go off and I'll be alone. I'll get in my little plastic boat and I'll fish. Or I'll just wander around out in the woods or something like that. But some of you guys, they might be able to relate to this. I, I don't know. It's good that you be away. Or maybe for you it's one of these, it's good that you be away because when you go away, then mom can come. Some of you want to laugh at that. <laughs> Some of you know better than to laugh at that, right? Because sometimes, and, and, and this is not, I brought that up because this is not a situation here like where the president and the vice president can never fly on Air Force One at the same time because something happened to both of them, then we're in a real mess. And that Jesus can't be here and the Holy Spirit at the same time. So one has to go away so the other can come. That's not it. The business for which Jesus came to this earth has to be finished. Then he goes back to the right hand of the Father where he advocates on our behalf having sent the Spirit to indwell us in, in our presence until he comes back for all of us. That's the way that all this works. So Jesus told the men it was better, not just better but best, that he go. Because if he doesn't go, the Holy Spirit cannot come. It's better that I'm not here is what Jesus is saying and what we've got together, uh, what Jesus had together with his disciples in person was, was wonderful for the time they had. But it could not be compared to what they would have with the Holy Spirit. Um, other things you could think of. As long as Jesus was there in person, his work was localized. You know what I mean by localized? He can only be in one place at one time. Uh, be the greatest, greatest thing invention to uh, you know the economic engines of the world. If people could be in more places than one at a time, 
We can't. And Jesus in his body could not either. He was restricted in this way. And it'd be impossible for him to communicate with the church as he communicated with the disciples as the church grew bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, just, just think of how it would be. I want an appointment with Jesus. Well, Jesus is one man. He can't do that. I want an appointment with the Holy Spirit. Well, he's right here for everybody, all the time, everywhere, 24-7. After Pentecost, the Spirit would be at all places at all times, wherever the believers are. So think of it this way if it helps it in your head. The Holy Spirit would come not to supply the Son's absence as a replacement, like second string, uh, as an understudy or something. I heard another pastor put it this way. How many of you get really excited when you drive all the way up to New York to see one of those plays and find out that the headliner is sick and his understudy's singing instead? Yippee. Um, that's not how this works. It's the same God. So it's not that he will supply the son's absence, but complete his presence. Jesus could only be one place at one time. God's spirit. He's everywhere. So it's an expansion, not a restriction at this point. Not to supply the son's absence, but to complete his presence. The spirit will do for everyone what Jesus had done for the disciples. Now what they needed to hang on to... Out of this verse, the disciples, because they're in the depths of despair, is the portion of the verse where it is good for you. It's an, it's, it's an advantage. It's expedient. And let me just give you a snapshot. And we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this. Before the Spirit was given to these men, if we were to flip over to Mark fourteen fifty, he makes it nice and concise. And they all left him and fled at... Judas' betrayal and the arrest. All left him, ran away. Uh, flip over into Acts 4, 31. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That's a huge change over the course of a few weeks. What's the difference? Jesus has gone away. The Holy Spirit is there. So, this also helps correct a common misunderstanding. I thought it'd be worth mentioning this as well at, at, at this place. How many of you have heard Christians or thought or said it yourself, boy, wouldn't it be nice if we could have been in Galilee when Jesus was teaching? And I, I don't think I, I could imagine much better than seeing his face and hearing his voice to go along with all that I've studied and been taught since I was a kid. But for some reason, that's not the way he worked this out. And he's telling his 12, now 11, that he spent three years with on purpose. That it's actually better that way. Even though any of you have ever been to Israel, or have planned to go, or would like to go, and how wonderful that is to be in the same spot, maybe within a few feet of where Jesus actually was when he was here on earth. That doesn't improve on what we've been given by the Holy Spirit. He's right here in this room. Now we're back to that mysterious stuff, right? Jesus walked in. I think (laughs) we'd know the Spirit's here because we're here. 
But sometimes we don't act like we know that. He says that it's better. Jesus insists that it's better to be alive now after the coming of the Spirit. As much as we enjoy these other things, or, or maybe an explanation why people spend their lives acquiring relics, stuff that people touched or might have walked on or thrown away, it doesn't make sense to us if we understand the significance of the Spirit. So let me give you a quick little outline. We're, we're right on the place where we'll see the first and not very far from where we'll see the second. But there are two aspects of the Holy Spirit's work explained here in this passage. And one is to convict. And that's verses 5 through 11. And then verses 12 through 15 is to glorify. Jesus is explaining to us what the Holy Spirit does. The way he explains it in this passage, one is to convict the world, and the other is to glorify him. So let's look at the first. That's verse 8. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then look at verse 9, because in verse 9, each of the three, and you can count them up in verse 8, there's sin, there's righteousness and judgment. That's three topics that the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world over. And then in verse 9, 10, and 11, each of these is given some explanation. Concerning sin, because they do not believe me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So, of those three, sin, righteousness, and judgment, we each have a concerning and a because. Here's why I'm telling you, and this is why I'm telling you. So there's a lot here in 8, 9, 10, and 11. So just to boil it back down again for your notes. When the Spirit comes, He will radically redefine three of the most elemental notions of spirituality. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Y'all think that those sound like spiritual things? Yeah. Sin's pretty spiritual. So is righteousness and the judgment between the two. And the Holy Spirit's going to reveal that the world is fundamentally wrong in its understanding of all three of those things. That Jesus came to die on the cross. He'd been teaching. The Holy Spirit's going to come and reinforce all that he taught. And he's going to highlight those three things. Because the world's still gotten them horribly wrong. The Spirit accomplishes this by means of conviction. Now, if we do a translation check here, you may have one of three or four different words in place of conviction or convict. You might have prove. You might have reprove. Reprove is kind of a correction of something. I heard one person say that, well, to reprove is after you've proved, you just prove it again. To reprove. Not, not exactly. Though it sounds like that. Well, there's prove, reprove, and convince. Depending on your translation, you may have those. Some of these words are older I don't know if you've used the word reprove lately, but the trouble with finding a lot of translations using different words sometimes is more an issue of the older translations using one word that meant a better translation back when it was used, maybe in England, and now we've got a more modern translation using words that we don't use anymore, but get right down to it. I like convict the best, but even then... Uh, if you're thinking of conviction like, okay, court scene, the world is, is, is uh, the defendant and the Holy Spirit is the prosecu 
prosecution attorney and great case hammer falls you've been convicted of misunderstanding sin righteousness and judgment that gets close but in this context given all that we've got and get out all the books with the Greek this has more to do with the conviction that we talk about in church circles you've probably heard the term being under conviction this is where the Holy Spirit has come on you and convinced you of a wrong, an error. Good Christian, great relationship with the Lord, Holy Spirit present, doing His work, not grieved. You don't get by with much, do you? Let's just talk about Dad. Dad gets up, things aren't right, day's already planned for him. Before he got up, looks at the text, it's awful, something goes wrong, he leaves the house with authority. You know what that is, leaving the house with authority? Usually with a slammed door, maybe kicking the dog, maybe even squealing tires, or throwing gravel if that's what your driveway is made out of. About the time he gets to work, it sets in, and maybe before lunch, or at least by the time he gets home. Dad was wrong about that. I, I wasn't in control of myself. I should be. I know better. Or you just say something awful. And you have to go back and you fix it. That is the convicting of the Spirit. He lets you know that you know better. And uh, he's going to do this for the world. And if you are saved and you know it, that's how it all started. There has to be a place where you didn't believe and now you do believe. Has to be a place where a sin wasn't a big deal. Now it is. And it's actually Christ's righteousness, not yours, that gets you to heaven. All that's the work of the Holy Spirit convincing you that this is the truth. It's all laid out right here. Um, these are interrelated. Sin is the fact of failure that everybody knows. Um, whether you're saved or lost, we know the difference between right and wrong. Classic example. Leave here, go to Walmart, break in line. They'll tell you that's wrong. They might not call you a sinner for doing it. Somebody probably would. But whatever they choose to call it, we know we're broken. Righteousness is an ideal standard on the opposite side of the spectrum. And the world's kind of got this mixed up too. Um, this probably should be a study done on how our heroes went from people who... Uh, went overseas and got blown up so we could have our freedoms to making billions of dollars on movies full of so-called superheroes that uh, are basically portrayed as victims. You know, trying to work through the bad hand they've been dealt. Um, Spirit's here to help us unravel all that then there's judgment that's the thing where you know the difference between sin and righteousness so let's look at all three and we'll pick up the pace here sin Jesus has said in effect is them not believing in me basically his coming into the world has changed the center and definition of sin and given it a new meaning when the spirit comes into the world he'll convict the world that sin is inextricably related to Jesus in his coming. Let me try to explain what that is. The Old Testament, you had a law to obey. 
You disobey the law, you're a sinner. That's sin. The law was the ruler and everybody was short. Now Jesus has come as the standard of redemption. He never sinned and has, and back in heaven, right hand of the throne of the Father. To disbelieve that now is the height of sin. You'll hear language in the Old Testament how once upon a time the Lord winked at their ignorance. But now that Jesus has come and the gospel is available to anyone, no one has an excuse. And it really makes sense if you look at it from the, the grand scheme of things. God creates a beautiful world. Everything in it puts a man and a woman in a garden. It's perfect. They've got everything they ever needed. Not long before they break the one rule that he gave them. Don't eat of that tree. Before it happened, he promised you'll die if you do it. Because that's not how this works. I created you. You will glorify me. You can't do that if you're in rebellion to me. They did it. And then you've got thousands of years worth of a story of how God hopes to redeem them from what they did. He's got his own chosen people that he works with closely to be a blessing to the rest of the world. But routinely, they just don't do it to a point where he says, I'll come myself. And instead of crushing the world like I promised I would if they ever sinned, which they did, I'll crush my son in their place. They won't have to pay. My son will pay. It's just that they have to believe that all this is true and worship him. Now you can understand where that would be the height of sin. Not what happened in the garden, but what happened at the cross. I'll not only take this apple in disobedience, but I'll reject the cure. I don't care. I don't want it. That is sin doubled down. So sin is defined from the cross as disbelief in Jesus' plan for salvation. Then you've got... Righteousness. Over against sin stands righteousness. And the Holy Spirit will now convict the world of this new definition of righteousness. Again, the Old Testament, it was the law. Now the standard of righteousness is the life of Jesus lived on earth where he never sinned. In perfect obedience to his Father. All the way to the cross. So to look at a refusal to be called out of the condition by the one God sent for that purpose, who's your righteousness when you're incapable of it, is to pit that sin and righteousness against one another. And to look at righteousness as far as Jesus, you know, it says right there, because I'm going back to God. How does that fit in there? Well, how would you mark the obedience of Jesus as totally complete at his death at his resurrection or when he gets home back to his throne the throne that he left when he took on human flesh to pay he's now seated back at the right hand of the throne of the father having completed the task of giving us the standard for righteousness that's how that makes sense So the world was wrong about sin because they didn't believe in Jesus. And they were wrong about righteousness because they actually killed the standard for righteousness. Thinking it was wrong. 
And they were wrong about judgment because it's incredibly difficult to make a judgment when you don't know what you're making a judgment between. If sin's wrong, righteousness is wrong. You ever heard two wrongs don't make a right? That really fits here. To not understand sin and to not understand righteousness is to make sure that all your judgments are way off. That's the situation we've gotten ourselves into. It'll affect our law, our education, our, our social constructs when we don't know the difference between right and wrong. That's why the Spirit's here, to make sure we know. Judgment. And that sounds like a negative word. It's not. It's a beautiful word. But it always occurs when an act or thought is evaluated by an absolute standard or principle. You've heard me talk about how we're in the process of trying to build a house. That's on pause now, but when we get underway, we've got these wonderful things called tape measures. And if I need to know how to cut a two-by-four to a specific length, that's my buddy. And I'll I'll, I'll use the circle saw and my... uh, whatever I've got, but... Speed square. If I don't have that standard, not only will you not want to visit the house or whatever part I was working on, it's not going to pass code. It will fail to measure up to the standard. That tape measure is is a judge, right? Um, It's our friend when building a house, but as far as ethics and culture... the tape measures are taking a lot of heat these days. How dare you say I'm this or I'm that based on any other agreed upon standards for millennia on end. That's the function of the Holy Spirit to remind us. It occurs when actions are judged by their accord with the law or their lack of conformity to it. Here's the point. When a human sinner is confronted with the righteousness of Jesus. Okay? If sin is disbelief and righteousness is Jesus and you put that sin up against Jesus, that judgment is self-evident. There's no such human that stands alongside Jesus' righteousness. And that judgment is what brings us to the point where we need salvation. Let me give you an example This is from Acts 2. On the work of the Holy Spirit, convincing of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and comparing Jesus and the truth. This is after the giving of the Holy Spirit. This is Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Peter's just finished a grand sermon. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Here's the reaction, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive... The gift of the Holy Spirit. Now the sermon's there. Maybe not every word. Maybe John is 
summarizing. But as far as I can tell in Peter's impassioned message, there are no tricks. Uh, there's no cleverness. It's just the truth. And men who for years, who actually stood with the mob and shouted, crucify him. Maybe even the guy who said, his blood be on us and our children. At this specific point, at the sound of truth, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, their hearts are changed. I can't do that. Peter couldn't do that. You can't do that. Nobody does that but the Holy Spirit. That's his job. That takes a whole load off of preacher's conscience. He doesn't have to be clever and smooth or twist things or gimmick the folks. Just tell them the story. Holy Spirit will wrap it up. So he says in verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And uh, the acquiring mind that wants to know, we want to say, oh man, what is he talking about? Well, we don't know what he's talking about because he doesn't say. But if we just backtrack a bit, if you remember, he's already told them, uh, they will put you out of the synagogues. I think that's, that's verse 2, chapter 16. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God and they will do these things because they've not known the Father nor me. So he's already given them bad news, right? It came time where bad news was necessary for them to hear. And then, uh, didn't, we, didn't we just read? Got my notes mixed up. He just finished saying, Did I not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you? Where he basically told them there was a time where I didn't need to tell you this bad news. I was here and I could run interference. And then just now we're reading, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So what we've seen in chapter 16 is some stuff that he hadn't told them, but he did. And then a reminder that there's stuff that I didn't tell you until now. And then it's going to close by saying, there's some stuff I hadn't told you that I'm not going to tell you now, but I will later. And that'll be the job of the Holy Spirit. So I think we've got a very strong case that the Lord is selective in what He tells us and when. And how many of you are glad for that? Looking back on your lives, how many of you would say, I'm sure glad the Lord didn't tell me all this up front. Uh... I'd wanted to be in North Carolina for a good long while. And I couldn't be more happy to be here. But if the Lord had told me before it was time about any of this, I don't know that I would have thought of it the same way. I didn't have what I needed then to do what I'm doing now. And by God's grace, <laughs> I'll have more later when I hear what I'd... How many of you were ready for 2020? How many of you enjoyed watching that stupid ball drop? How many of you want to watch it drop again? I really want to watch it drop again. I want, an, I want another year. Done with this one. God gave us what we needed when we needed it. 
We're doing the best we can with what we've got right where we're at. And so far, we're doing it together, which is huge. Some churches aren't doing that together. It's split them up into different groups, different interests, because the problems are bigger than their unity. It's unfortunate. I'm glad the Lord gives us what we need when we need it. And much of that is through the work of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 13. All that's a preface to 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, Jesus says, He will guide you. I've been guiding you. He'll guide you. And He'll guide you into all truth. For He'll not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. There's that second thing that the Holy Spirit is here to do. And the significance of that is just to add the Spirit to this wonderful intimacy we've been reading of over and over and over again between Jesus and the Father. Well, put the Spirit in there with Jesus and the Father just as tight, just as intimate, and just as glorifying of one another. There's all kinds of stuff we could write sermons about as to the ramifications of what this means. Uh, There are no more disciples All those are old because the Spirit talks about how He'll help you remember that stuff when I was with you. And we're going to get a new one, only that was an eyewitness. And uh, the fact that nothing's new, it's just the stuff that the Father gave Jesus and now that Jesus is giving to the Spirit. But no new illumination unfolding of any new mysteries. It's not like, oh, this is great. He's been holding back. When the Spirit comes, He's going to give us some of the good stuff. If you don't know the Spirit like you should know the Spirit, then you're missing out. No, it's the same story. It's the original light. Come to earth, into the dark earth, the light of the world. The Spirit's just going to bear the same witness and glorify the same gospel. So what do we make of all this? Let's do it quickly. We've been talking about sin, righteousness, judgment. That's the work of the Spirit to convict us, to convict the world of these things. Are you sensitive to your sin? Especially your sins against Jesus? You see, that, that's, that's a wonderful way to just expose a, a, a dandy of a rub. I know a lot of people who have a lot of good things to say about Jesus. They love Jesus. They don't live like him, not anywhere remotely. Jesus is that standard of righteousness. Standard without, you're not going to heaven. But to expect to get that righteousness just at the gates, but to live down here like you know nothing of it, that, that's a problem with your belief. That's probably what was going on when Jesus looked at people and said, I know you believe, you like the miracles, but I don't believe in you yet. Keep listening. Almost like a stiff arm. That there's such a thing as belief that's not belief. If you're sensitive to your sin, especially over against the righteousness of Jesus, there's nothing else to say than that grace is at work in your life. If that bothers you at all, thank the Lord the Holy Spirit is close and He's working. Are you convicted of your sin? Not just convinced of it, but convicted. Convinced of Christ's righteousness.
What about convinced of a real judgment where you will be judged on the difference between his righteousness and your own having been given grace? Or the judgment of those who are without? If this is true, I do believe, feel quite happy borrowing old language. You are under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But if you can go days on end, to borrow from uh, Ross, who, used, who I'm sure got it from the same place my father. If your sin accounts are long sin accounts, not short sin accounts, where's the work of the Holy Spirit? Do you know Him? Is there a problem here? Is there a problem with belief in what sin is, which is unbelief, or the standard of righteousness that you must have in order to enter heaven? That's the gospel. It's, it's not some kind of, you know, Sliding scale based on, you know, your own customization. If that is true, if you are convinced of sin, convinced of Christ's righteousness, and convinced of a judgment, either you're saved or you soon will be. Because you, be, you, you can't build that. You don't bring that to the table. Those are things that people who are lost in their trespasses and sins don't worry about. Yeah, they might want to be the nice guy on the block instead of the mean one. Don't get me wrong there. But to specifically know that my sins are wrong because Jesus is right. And that he came to get rid of the sin and give me his righteousness so that I'll survive the judgment. If you know that stuff, you're saved or you soon will be. Spirit's got his hold on you. Nothing any one of us can do to bring conviction on another. That's clear here. The work of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world. That includes all of us. But amazingly, while it's the work of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction, He decides to use us to tell the truth. He used Peter. Holy Spirit didn't deliver that message. He just took it to their heart, pressed it on their consciences. From the mother at a table with her children to the Sunday school teacher with bunch of people sitting there or two or one or a guy full of people at a church it's all the same it's our job to tell the truth Holy Spirit's job to bring it home so the glaring question here is an evangelistic one have I truly been born again by the Spirit of God if all this stuff's new to you but it's really bothering you right now and you need some more information. I'd love nothing more than to talk to you about this. Don't wait. Call me. Come by the office. Talk to the person that brought you. Just keep studying. Pray like the woods are on fire. But if you have, you saved and you know it. You said amen, you clapped your hands, you stomped your feet, all the way that the song goes. Then from this passage, three things to ask ourselves, which is ultimately an ask to God. Why don't we ask God to show us our sins? If the Holy Spirit came to, to convict the world of sin, then why don't we just proactively ask the Lord, would you show that to me? Not my sin as the one that separates me from God, but my sins, the ones that you can count and name and know when you did them but that get in the way of your usefulness to God's 
you know, plan of salvation as far as using you to tell anybody else. That's one prayer that he'll answer. If you pray every day for a week, Lord, show me my sin, I bet you'll do it. Why wouldn't he? Why would the Lord not tell you about something he died to remove? And he'll help you remove it too. And he'll make you more useful, less proud, less ugly. And then ask God to show you the excellency or the righteousness of Jesus. That's another way to do the same thing. Just show me Jesus as he is. And that's when you'll feel more dirty than you've ever felt. Not that that's the way Jesus' mind is toward you. I'm reading through a book now called Meek and Lowly. And uh, it's done an amazing job of explaining the heart of Jesus to me. Jesus doesn't leave heaven, take on the human form, lay down on a cross to lecture you. He does that to love you. Like a parent. Think of your kids. Do you delight to get up in the morning to find them doing something wrong and then just beat them for it? Or does it break your heart when they've done something wrong? And you're, as a parent, compelled to correct them and to guide them through this. But who's, who does it hurt more? That's not garbage. I thought it was when I was a kid. It's going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. No, I know it's true now. It hurts the Lord more than it hurts us. That's why I did all this. Ask God to show us the excellency of Jesus. And then finally, ask God to give us more of the Holy Spirit. Anybody that's ever made a big difference on my life, spiritually speaking, was full of the Holy Spirit. When they needed uh, elders in the church, uh, when they needed deacons, it says men full of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the, 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 the bearing witness uh, pipe, conduit, whatever it is, to make sure sin is in its place, righteousness is in its place, and the distinction between the two, the work of the Holy Spirit, that's what we need. That's what moms need, dads need, Wake Chapel needs, Fuquay needs, Verena too. That's what we need. Uh, this has been helpful to me this morning. And, uh, I think that'd be a good prayer. Let's get started with it now. We're going to finish before benediction with the same song last week. Uh, Thank you, all my Father, for giving us your Son, but leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we ask that you would convict us of our sins. It's a scary prayer to pray. You to do so would be to open our eyes to things we would rather not look at. But Lord, how will you use us if we're dirty? Lord, we ask that you show us the righteousness of your Son. Show us what we were supposed to look like before we sinned. Modeled by the Lamb of God who came to take away our, our sins. And then, Lord, give us the Spirit. Unwrap some of that mystery. Not all of it. But at least understand what's told in Scripture. 
And Lord, see fit to use us. I'm sure we have rough patches ahead. We're showing other people what changed our life may be more fruitful than we've seen in a very long time. Lord, give us courage for such things. But give us your Holy Spirit to speak the word of God with boldness. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.